Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. The Lean Startup methodology shifted the way many companies think about business by encouraging hypothesis-driven experimentation, iterative product releases, and validated learning. But can the same concepts be applied to social impact organizations? Author Anne May Chang thinks it is essential, and her decades of experience as a Silicon Valley executive and chief innovation officer at USAID led her to write her new book on the subject, Lean Impact. In this episode of Hack the Process, Anne May shares how she used data to evolve and scale USAID's social programs, what role her network played in developing the ideas in her book, and why she decided to focus on fixing the systems of social giving instead of devoting her time to one particular cause. Today I'm speaking with Anne May Chang. She's the author of Lean Impact, a book that's coming out later this month. Anne May, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm really excited to meet you. And I've been hearing about your book. I got a pre-release copy, which I've been taking a look at. And I'd love for you to tell people a little bit about the book and what you've been working on. Yeah, so I've been working on writing a book called Lean Impact, How to Innovate for Radically Greater Social Good. And it's inspired by a best-selling book called The Lean Startup by Eric Ries that came out several years ago. And in The Lean Startup, Eric, I think, was one of the people who did a fantastic job capturing the nuts and bolts of how innovation actually happens under the hood in Silicon Valley and, and has become, you know, sort of a Bible of sorts in Silicon Valley and, and now far beyond, I mean, large companies and government and so forth. But what I found is that while a lot of people in the social sector and who are working for social good talk about you know the need for innovation and some of them have even read the lean startup there's a lot of challenges that make it much harder to innovate in the social sector. And so I, I wrote this book really to try to address those challenges and look at how can we take these same best practices for innovation and bring them to maximizing the social good we can achieve in the world. It's an interesting challenge. And it actually, it always struck me as kind of interesting that people were even reading Lean Impact outside of the Silicon Valley area and trying to, to apply the learnings from that, because it feels like there are so many different areas from like enterprise to startup to small companies, medium-sized companies, government. They're all trying to learn lessons from the Lean Startup concept. I'm curious how you found that issue. I think that people around the world look to Silicon Valley as the hotbed of innovation and and want to learn. You know, we're seeing the pace of change ex only continuing to accelerate in every aspect of our lives, in every aspect of business and government and so forth. And so I think people are feeling the need to innovate, to be able to just keep up, let alone get ahead. And so when a book like Lean Startup comes out and it really shows the path to doing it. I think it's it's quite compelling to people because I think people are seeing the need to innovate. And Lean Startup did come out of the tech startup world, but it's not rocket science. I mean, it doesn't require technology. It doesn't require a startup. And in fact, Eric's newer book, The Startup Way, really brings it more into the corporate world. And at the heart of the Lean Startup is really the scientific method, You know, the, something we all have heard about and maybe learned about in school. But it's really just about the process of taking a problem or product or service, 
which we're trying to develop in the conditions of high degrees of uncertainty, which is certainly the case in tech startup companies who are trying to invent things no one's ever done before. And it's also the case um, when we're trying to deliver social good, where we're trying to tackle intractable problems that we haven't figured out how to solve. And so where there's high degrees of uncertainty, the scientific method it really helps us as a tool to have a hypothesis of what we think might happen. In lean startup parlance, Eric talks about is build, measure, learn. So build an experiment that actually tests that hypothesis in the form of a MVP or minimum viable product, measure the results, look at what happens, and then learn and see like, did this do what we expected? Did it prove the hypothesis? In which case, maybe we can double down. Or did it disprove the hypothesis? And either we need to tweak what we're doing or consider a completely different path altogether. I think one of the things that people really caught on to about that, as you said, is this notion that you should actually measure what you're doing and see if it's having the effect that you intend it to have, using actual data to drive what you want to do next. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, having worked at companies like Google, data is king. You know, we, we gather tons of data and we really use data to make decisions about, is this a good feature? Is this a good user interface? Is this a good algorithm? But what I found is that when we're trying to work towards social good, we often are not as rigorous about data. Sometimes that's because it's just much harder. It's like much harder to measure whether you're breaking the cycle of poverty, for example, than measure whether someone's buying a product on your e-commerce site. And so sometimes it's harder to gather that data, but also the incentives aren't quite there. Like in the tech sector, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of incentives that drive you towards maximizing your profits, maximizing your user base, maximizing your sales. When you're working towards social good, I think a lot of times people are too easily satisfied with the fact that we're trying to do good and not looking at, are we doing everything possible to maximize the cost benefit of what we're delivering? And so trying to make the most impact possible for the most number of people. You talk about something really interesting there because it's a question of how social good organizations are incentivized. How do they even measure how they're being successful? Yeah, I mean, as with most organizations, you know, money speaks the most loudly. And one of the biggest challenges of taking lean approaches in the social sector and is the way that money works, whether organizations are raising money from philanthropists or foundations or from the government, a lot of times that the, the funding that they receive is very risk averse. People want to know that you're going to know what you're going to do, know exactly how you're going to do it and see you deliver what you said you were going to do. You know, in fact, most grant proposals re require you to detail out in advance exactly where you're going to spend all the pennies, you know, who are all the people, what are exactly are you going to do and then execute with high fidelity to that plan. And that's really the opposite of what you want for innovation. You know, for innovation, you really want to be able to take some risks, to try different paths. That, that's the way that we get better is to, to try different potential options. And then based on data, be able to pivot and be adapt and be as agile as possible to learn quickly and adapt what we do. That's really difficult when we're looking at funding that is quite restrictive and expects us to deliver on a plan that we may have defined years ago. As I've heard you say, and as I've seen before, it seems like a lot of social impact work is driven by a very waterfall notion where you have to have the end result planned out in the beginning years ahead of time before you even have a chance to see whether the pieces going along the way are having any impact. And it's always felt to me as if that's largely because of the need to avoid fraud in that area. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that one one of the motivations is certainly you know compliance to avoid fraud and so forth. And so, what happens? One of the ways you do that is you manage very tightly. And so, if you think about the way that nonprofit activities are managed, you know, it's, it's not that dissimilar to micromanaging employees, right? That they're told exactly what to do. You measure and test. You know, you check to make sure they're doing exactly what they said they're going to do. And you can certainly avoid corruption that way and, you know, people wasting money, but you don't get the best results. You know, nobody delivers their best work um, when they're being micromanaged. And so I think there are other ways that we can use that learning from what's worked well in Silicon Valley and in business and in other realms that have found ways to incentivize and focus people on results, but not constrain the means to get to that end, right? I think it's more important to focus on the ends than the means. I, I would definitely agree. And it's, sometimes it's just hard to get people to come around to thinking that way, when, especially when they're so entrenched in the way that they've been thinking for so many years. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's why I think it's important to take small steps, right? I think we're not going to completely change overnight how the whole industry works. And so we can take small steps there. One of the things when I was at USAID that we did was that we have a different way of funding. So traditionally, USAID has, gives out large grants of you know millions or tens of millions of dollars. And they do require this kind of waterfall model of you define your, your design and plan in detail in advance, and then you execute on that plan for years. So instead, what we did was we created a new funding mechanism called DIV or Development Innovation Ventures. And DIV was modeled after the way venture capital works, you know, which is, you know, and the way venture capital works is you place lots of small bets uh, that are risky in the beginning, but they're small bets, right? And so if you place a bet that's risky and it doesn't pan out, you didn't lose a lot of money. And that, that's what we did in Div and allowed us to be able to go out and cast a wider net to bring in a wider set of innovators, a wider set of ideas. But since we're giving out these small grants of maybe about $100,000 each, we're able to take more risk. And when those fail, they fail small. You know, innovation requires us to fail, but what we want to do is fail as small as possible, not fail big. And so once we place all these bets and we see which solutions are really working, and once they start getting traction, then we can double down and we'll do a million dollars perhaps, and then later $5 million. And so by tiering the, the grant structure, um, it holds organizations accountable because just like a startup company, if you don't deliver the goods, you're not going to get your next round of money, but it gives them the flexibility within the funding that they have to be able to be much more flexible and learn more quickly and really drive towards results rather than drive towards executing to a plan. I'm just trying to imagine what the conversation must have been like in a government sector job, trying to convince people that this, this approach would make sense, which obviously it does, but how do you show that? You know, we had an administrator, Raj Shah, who was fairly forward-leaning and, and saw the value and importance of innovation. I think in the global development space, which is what USAID works in, you know, we're really seeing that the needs so far outpace the funds that we have. And so we know that we need to do more. And one of the ways to get there is through innovation. And so he, you know, I, th I think is partly through his leadership, he really pushed the idea that we do need to spend a small portion of our portfolio. And this is not something we're doing with the majority of USAID money. We're starting small. And so, you know, the, the DIV program is probably 0.1 or 0.01% of USAID's budget. So it's not like betting the farm on this, but he thought it was worthwhile to, to take the risk to try something different. And what we found is that as a result, we've been able to bring in ideas we never would have before, uh, engage with innovators and partners we never would have before. And, and some of those innovations, certainly not all of them, but some of them have really delivered dramatic results. And that is one thing that I have heard from people who have done entrepreneurship, for example, in the enterprise level. When you have a huge budget, if you can shave off a tiny little portion of it and apply it towards something innovative, sometimes you can demonstrate that value without having to try to bet the whole bank on it. 
Exactly. And I would say the same tenet holds true when you look at how nonprofits apply for grants. I've really encouraged nonprofits. I think nonprofits are a little bit too cowed by the donors sometimes because, you know, they're very dependent on the funding from donors. But what I've encouraged nonprofits to do is consider if you're applying for a grant, how about carving out 5% of your grant funds and proposing that you use that for innovation, right? So 95% is still doing whatever it is the donor is looking to have happen, and you can deliver whatever products or services or otherwise that the donor's looking for. But if you carve out 5% and you say, hey, with that 5%, we're going to experiment and see if we can do the other 95% more cost-effectively. And if you're able to make improvements there of reducing the cost, increasing the effectiveness, or increasing the scale even by 10%, you've more than paid for yourself from that funding. And it's not a big risk for the donors to take, you know, a small slice of that, whether it's 5% or 2% or 10%. You know, the vast majority of funds are still going to something that they understand and can track and, and fits in their traditional world. But it's a way to start inching our way towards seeing the value of what can be possible when we give a little bit more flexibility. It's wonderful to see this happening on the social impact side of things. And I'm curious, in your career, a lot of what you've done has led you back to social impact. I'm really curious how you came to that. The first half of my career, you know, I spent 23 years or so in Silicon Valley. And I would say, you know, my career was, you know, a fairly traditional Silicon Valley career. I started as a software engineer, got into management fairly early, but worked at a bunch of both startup companies and large tech companies. The last one was at Google. And I think that during that part of my career, most of my work for social good was outside of my job. It was volunteering, uh, sitting on boards and, and so forth. But I knew for most of those 23 years that I wanted to do something more meaningful in my life um, in, uh, over time. And so I decided I know, something in my mid-20s that I wanted to spend the second half of my career in the public or social sector doing something to make the world a better place. And so about seven years ago, I kind of made that leap. And I kind of inched my way towards that. The last year as I, I was at Google, I shifted to leading our emerging markets business unit, essentially. And that gave me some more exposure to a space that I thought I wanted to get into, which is global poverty, and helped me learn more about what was going on. And then finally made the leap and left Google, went to the State Department through a fellowship program, and then a nonprofit called Mercy Corps that does humanitarian aid and global development, and finally USAID. So it really was something that you just made a conscious choice to step away from the career path that you had been following and move into an area which probably wasn't as remunerative, but was more satisfying? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, th I think I have been so much more excited getting up for work every day since I made the switch. You know, I loved working in Silicon Valley. I have nothing to complain about there. It was challenging and rewarding. And, you know, we're building products for millions, if not billions of people around the world that were making their lives better. But it never felt as meaningful to me at a, at a deeper level. And so what I've been doing since, I, I just feel like is so much more meaningful. And I feel like I can really focus the fullness of my energy on how do we really make people's lives better as opposed to it being a side effect. Is there any particular area that you choose to focus in on when you're looking at that? You know, when I when I first made the transition out of Google, I decided to put my attention towards global poverty because it felt like it was so much at the root of so many of the problems that I really cared about, you know, poverty and inequality in the world. 
And so that's what I spent this first six years or so after I left Google focused on. But as I kind of went through my journey, and this is a completely world, different world for me, right? Completely different world from Silicon Valley and building software products. And, and so I had a lot to learn. And so, you know, I thought of my first, my couple of years at the State Department as kind of my custom master's in public policy, where I just, you know, learn by doing and learn by working with some of the best people in the industry and, and all the partners that come through the State Department. So over time, uh, you know, what I found is that initially people wanted, you know, would approach me to, because I came from Silicon Valley, they would approach me to say, hey, could you help me build an app or help me build a website? It actually wasn't something I had the skills to do myself because I had been in an engineering director role. We were writing, you know, infrastructure software. So it, I didn't actually know how to build a website or an app myself. But, you know, what I found over time and as I learned more about how the social sector worked is that I found that it was less that there were certainly opportunities for technology to accelerate things. But I thought I found that there was even more opportunity to learn from the process of, of innovation, to learn from the way Silicon Valley did stuff. And so, you know, at USAID, that was a lot of what we focused on is a different way of doing business, you know, thinking about it differently, such as, you know, I talked about with Div, structuring some of the unsexy stuff, like, you know, how we do procurement, how we do hiring, you know, how we structure grants. These are the things that kind of help unleash innovation and, and how we use data. And so I started focusing more broadly on the high leverage point of, can we make the system work differently? You know, get the funders to behave differently, get the nonprofits or the social enterprises or the triple bottom line companies to behave differently so that we put as relentless a focus on maximizing social impact and scale as we do in maximizing profits in the business world. So it's interesting. So you, you really focused in on the systems of how social good organizations work as opposed to trying to focus on a specific area of social good that you were trying to resolve. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think most people who come into the social good space have a passion for a particular geography or a particular issue area. And maybe because I'm an engineer, I, I have come at it from a different uh, place. And, and my focus has really been on you know, re-engineering the system to say whatever geography or whatever issue area you're focused on, how do we help make everyone more effective and give everyone the tools? Because as we talked about earlier, you know, with the pace of change just speeding up around the world, I think that what I see among foundations and nonprofits is they're not adapting and learning as quickly as the rest of the world. And so I worry that as the problems get more complex, we don't have the tools that will help us really be able to get on top of them. But why do you think that it is that that particular sector tends to sort of lag behind other areas? That's a good question. I mean, I think it really depends. There's so many different players in the sector that all have different interests. So it really depends who you talk to. But I think there's a few things that I would say. So one is that, you know, there's a great quote that I use in the book from a, a woman named Nicola Gallenbink, who is at Yellowwoods in South Africa. It's an investment group in South Africa. And she said, the same people who are chasing elephants in the private sector are chasing mice in the social sector. And I think it so well captures, you know, I see people who are incredibly ambitious working at companies like Facebook and Google, reaching millions and billions of people. And when it comes to social good, we end up getting satisfied with just like we are trying to do some good. So if we help these 500 people, like we feel good about ourselves. We feel like we did something. And we, I think the first thing is that we just don't have as much ambition when it comes to social good because we're trying to do something that feels like it makes a tangible difference and not thinking about the system in the same way that we do when we are building products and, and businesses. You know, I, I think another big challenge that we started to talk about is, is the structure of funding. I think that you know, whether it's a foundation or a government agency or a philanthropist, when people are giving away money, 
for some reason, they're much more risk adverse than when they're investing money. You know, we all know from retirement or investment 101 that if you don't take some risk with your investment, you're unlikely to get the rewards and you'll just keep falling behind. And for some reason, we haven't quite learned that lesson when it comes to donating money, that when we donate money, we want to see exactly what we're going to get for the money we donated. And just as we know, if you invest all your retirement in cash, you're unlikely to have enough when you retire. I think the same thing holds true. If you're trying to achieve social good, you can certainly do some good by doing the conservative thing that people have been doing and is tried and true. But I think that investing more in taking some risks to move the needle and to really try to find game changers can can get us even further. So I know that in researching your book, I believe you talked to something like 200 different organizations that were trying to move the needle in this respect. And I'm curious, what examples did you come up with that really inspired you? Yeah, there's so many. You know, I talked to over 200 organizations, some of which were nonprofits, some were social enterprises, some were for-profit companies that really had a focus on social good, but also funders, whether they were philanthropists or foundations or impact investors. And one of the things I would say is that the social good space has really evolved over time. You know, when I was a child, you know, if you wanted to do good, you went to a nonprofit where you donated money. And if you wanted to make money, then you went to a company or, you know, you you invested your money. And I think those two sides are are really blurring today. And I, I saw that in the in the different organizations I was talking to. More and more things are happening in the space in between. You know, in terms of organizations that inspire me, one in, in the vein of you know what I was mentioning earlier about is being more ambitious. You know, one story that really hit home to me was there's a, a nonprofit in the Bay Area here called Earn that is a micro savings platform. And what they do is they try to work with Americans to who are low income to build a habit of savings so that they can save money to make investments in things that will improve their lives and also have a cushion for when things, you know, emergencies come up. And several years ago, they were at the, the height of their game. You know, they were being given awards and so forth for being one of the top players in the industry they were in that space, one of, the, one of the biggest successes, and they were serving about 7,000 people. And the, the founder and CEO at the time, Ben Mangan, one day woke up and he, was, he thought there's actually something like 50 million people who could use something like this. And we're getting to just 7,000 people. That's such a tiny fraction. We need to be far more ambitious. And so at an awards dinner, he actually got up and he made this audacious pledge to say, you know, we're going to reach a million people in the next five years. Um, and when you're talking about 7,000 people in the first 15 years, that's a pretty big leap. And I think that that's the kind of audacious goal that we need to set for ourselves when we tackle social challenges. And what it required EARN to do is completely relook at their model. They originally were work focused on, you know, kind of in-person visits and matching savings to encourage folks to save, but they knew they couldn't scale to a million people that way. It would just be too expensive and too time consuming. So they ended up building an online platform in this case to, to be able to get to that kind of scale. And in their first year, they reached more people than they did in the first 15. And that's, of course, something they couldn't have even considered doing 15 years ago because online platforms wouldn't have made sense back then. Exactly. And so that's why we need to continue to you know, look at the landscape of both how the problems are changing and how the tools are changing that we might be able to deploy to solve those problems. I love the idea of making such an audacious statement and just trying to make it happen without necessarily knowing in advance how you're going to make it happen. Yeah. And I would say that an audacious goal is the birthplace of innovation. Too often, I think innovation has become such a buzzword that you know everybody's talking about innovation and people generally tend to initially just do the simple thing, which is like, let's run a contest, let's build a cool little technology gadget, let's do a pilot. 
And it's the flashy stuff of innovation that gets all the attention. But I think the birthplace of innovation and what really drives innovation is when you have an audacious goal that is something that you can't reach with business as usual. Because if you're still trying to reach goals that are you know, built from the bottoms up of you know, extrapolating what we're doing today, and if we do a little bit better and a little bit more, we can get to this other goal, you don't, there's no reason to take huge risks then. There's no reason to really innovate. And so innovation becomes bolted onto the side. But if you want innovation to be at the core, I think the, the starting point is by adopting an audacious goal that is a stretch, you know, such as, you know, President Kennedy challenged the United States to send a man to the moon. We had no idea how to do it, but it really galvanized people to, to try and to stretch themselves to find a way. Well, some people would say just writing a book is an audacious goal. And yet this is something that you jumped into and you did it yourself. Yes. Um, it, it was not something I ever thought that I would do. But when I left USAID and I was thinking, you know, I'd gotten very passionate about the potential of what we could do by learning how to, you know, innovate better in the social sector, apply these tools for innovation in the social sector. And in leaving government, I was looking at the different options for how I could take that forward. And I thought writing a book might be the best way that I could kind of contribute what I'd learned and, and also do more research to learn more and, and help bring this knowledge to a much broader audience. So I'd love to dig into your process a little bit about how you put this book together and how you wrote it. Because as you said, you talked to 200 different organizations. It, it seems like it's a lot to coordinate. It is. Although, you know, the, the interviews were actually the, the fun part for me, at least, because they were so fascinating. You know, I, I talked to both a number of organizations that I already knew and got deeper into their stories. But I also asked all the smartest people I knew in the industry for who were the best organizations that were doing the most exciting work and, and you know, kind of kept following the trail to find who were the real exemplars in the industry and, and got to meet so many amazing entrepreneurs that were so inspiring. So, so that part felt like it almost flew by. I, I talked to probably about 300 people from, from over 200 organizations. And I also did a number of different field visits to actually see their work on the ground. And, and that was incredibly fun. After I sort of did most of the research, I, then I had to turn to actually writing the book. And, and I would say for me personally, that was tougher because writing is a pretty lonely process. You know, I went from, you know, being at USAID and having meetings every half hour back to back to doing all these interviews and talking to all these exciting people to now just shuffling over to my desk every morning, my bunny slippers and trying to figure out what I was going to write. Yeah, that, that can be a very lonely process. And it can be hard to get the discipline to keep yourself going on something like that, too. I'm not sure that I've ever written anything more than a blog post before. And so it was a pretty big leap from what I've done before. And, and in the kinds of jobs I've been in over the last at least 10 years or 15 years, you know, I barely ever had time to sit down at my desk to do anything. You know, most of my work life has been engaged in meetings with other people. And so this, this is a huge daunting task for me relative to what I'd been doing. And there was one tip that a friend gave me that that really helped me break it down, right? Which is that she's like, you know, decide on a number of words that you're going to write each day. You know, I, I set a target of, I think it was 1200 words a day. And, and that made it a little bit more manageable. It's like I was writing a blog post a day or something like that. And so, you know, each day I'd have the target, sit down and start writing. And, you know, once I hit my target, then I could reward myself and go out and do something fun. And so th th that helped break down this sort of daunting process into something that was a little bit more manageable. So did you do this like completely in isolation or were you working with editors? 
I did have a, a couple different editors I worked with. I also had a number of different colleagues in the industry who were kind enough to volunteer their time to review early drafts and give me feedback. And it was incredibly helpful to, to have that interactive feedback. You know, it was a little bit of, you know, I felt like the process was a little bit like lean, that write a little bit. I'd send, you know, I'd have maybe 20 different people that I was sending different parts of the book to get their feedback. And it would help me kind of refine what I was doing based on what they were seeing in the book. I like that because you, when you set the goal of writing a book, that can be this huge waterfall project down the road where you make the outline and you just fill in all of the different pieces as opposed to getting that feedback constantly along the way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was incredibly helpful. I mean, I think the book was really shaped by the feedback of all the different people, both the editors and the colleagues that took the time to give me feedback. So it, it sounds to me like not only from the research perspective, but also from the writing perspective, the network that you built through the work that you did over the years has been a really critical part of how you did this. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was very fortunate because in the job that I was at in USAID, you know, we worked with so many different types of partners that I had the privilege of meeting so many of the leaders in the industry who are, who are doing interesting work and getting to learn from them and work with them. So I'm curious about how did you manage your own transition from in terms of your self-care from a time when you were relying on like somebody else to keep your schedules because you're going to the office every day to suddenly being at home alone and just taking care of yourself while trying to accomplish this? I'm a pretty self-sufficient person, so that wasn't too difficult for me. I, I would say, in, if anything, it was harder for me to adjust to having so many people taking care of things for me when I went into government. Um, you know, having worked in the tech industry for a long time, even though I had, you know, an assistant, you know, at Google, the the ratio of assistance to staff is very low at a place like Google. So, you know, my assistant didn't do that much for me. I, I still a lot of times scheduled my own meetings and so forth. Even and when I was at Google, you know, I think we had like one person who was assisting like the whole office in London with like, you know, 80 people or something like that. So it wasn't like I got a lot of personal attention. Um, then when I went into government, I had I found that I had like a front office of staff who was supporting me of three people. And I it was a very different situation. The way government works, there's a lot more bureaucracy. There's a lot more systems you have to go through. And there's a lot more people who are involved. And, and if anything, I think that was harder for me to adjust to. Well, now I'm imagining that you're shifting from the relatively isolated work of writing, although you didn't do it so isolated because you were involving your network, but shifting from that now into the publicity side where you have to start going out and speaking about your book and promoting it. And I'm just about to kick off my book tour. So that's an exciting time for me. And, and it's fun to be interacting with people, interacting with ideas and kind of hearing people's reactions, hearing people's, their own stories, people are sharing with me. It is also a, a little bit of a new and different thing for me because having been in engineering for most of my career, I'm used to kind of being in the side, the building behind the walls, you know, doing the work, you know, the elves, you know, now I have to be out there and sort of promoting things, which is not something I'm accustomed to. So it's something, uh, it's a little out of my comfort zone, but I'm learning. Well, I'm curious about that. How did you develop your public speaking abilities? Oh, I, you know, mostly through practice. You know, I did very little public speaking when I was in engineering. And, and since I left Google, even when I started at the State Department, I started having to do more public speaking, then a little bit more at Mercy Corps, and then a lot more when I got to USAID. So a lot of it is, for me, has just been plunging in and doing it. And practice makes perfect. I hope I've gotten a little bit better over time. <laughs> Well, I've seen some of your videos, and I think you, you do a very good job of being very clear and putting things out there in a way that the general audience can understand. But I also feel like you're speaking to a target audience, and I'm curious how you've decided to target your audiences. Like, Who are you trying to reach with all of this? 
Well, with the Lean Impact book, I'm really trying to reach a pretty broad audience of anyone who's thinking about spending their work, their money, or their time to drive greater social good. And, and I think that that's almost everybody these days. It's very heartening that people are really thinking about the impact of everything that they do and, and how they can create more good in the world, you know, whether it's a company or individual. And so I think it's a pretty broad audience and, and it includes, you know, certainly nonprofits and foundations, but like I said, they are no longer the only ones in this business. You know, companies are in the business, investors are in the business. And so I think what's important though, is as we start looking more and more at social good, social impact being core to what we do, we need tools to be able to, just as we have tools to figure out how to run a business and earn revenues and earn profits, we need tools to understand how do we know how much impact we're having? How do we how do we bring the impact to scale? And how do we measure how well we're doing? And I'm curious if you set yourself up with ways to measure the impact that you're going to be having with your book. Oh, it's a little hard to measure impact of a book, but um, you know what I'm hoping. What I'm hoping with the book, and I don't know exactly how you measure it, is that you know my my most ambitious goal for the book is similar to the way Lean Startup became, you know, part of the lexicon. You know, people would talk about Lean Startup whether or not they'd actually read the book, and and kind of in their mind they'd have a general idea of these principles and a different way of doing things that's really become imbued in certainly across Silicon Valley, but I think across many companies now. In and even in government, people talk about, you know, kind of these lean processes. And so my goal is really to have that be true also for people who are doing social good. So people, you know, whether or not they've actually read the book are thinking about and asking these questions of, you know, the basic three principles in the book are think big, like how do we be more audacious about what we're trying to do so that we're not as many, many times we tend to plan for social good within the constraints of what resources that we have rather than the needs that exist in the world. So how do we become much more audacious in our goals? But then how do we start small? How do we experiment and test and be rigorous about seeing whether what we're doing is actually going to work and not be satisfied with we're pointed in the right direction, we're doing something that's doing some good, but really looking at how do we maximize the good that we do? And then finally, like the, the idea of relentlessly of seeking impact is how do we take as much responsibility for the, our social impact as we do for generating profits for shareholders? You know, that may mean letting go of your particular solution. It may mean, you know, not promoting your particular open organization, but open sourcing something. There's a lot of different ways that I think we get in our own way where we think we're doing good, but we're actually holding back the good that we could do if we were to release some of those constraints. That does make sense. You know, one of the things that I love about the way that you present things in your book is that you take the paradigm that was set up by Eric Ries originally and you add the impact component to it. Yeah. So in, in the Lean Startup, Eric talks about, you know, when you're trying to test a product or service that in this realm of great uncertainty, that you have to look at two hypotheses, the value hypothesis and the growth hypothesis. And so for business, then this basically amounts to, is do you have a product or service people want and need and will demand and come back for and tell their friends about? And the second hypothesis is the growth hypothesis, which is really about you know, if we have something that people want, how do we get it out to and scale to the size of the need, to the people who could really benefit from the solution? And I think that works well for companies. But what I introduce in the Lean Impact book is a third hypothesis, which is the impact hypothesis. And that is, you know, not only is this something people want and that we can get to people, but does it have the social benefit that we intend? Does it solve a social problem or a pain point that people have? And that's something that I think is important to balance with the other two. And I came up with that framing when I looked at various innovations in the social sector that have succeeded and failed. And the ones that have succeeded managed to hit on all three of those dimensions. 
And the ones that failed usually fell short on, on at least one or if not two of those dimensions. But I think that this sort of framing is becoming more and more relevant for business. You know, we're seeing businesses, you know, especially the tech sector is getting a, a lot of negative attention these days because they provided value and growth and gotten their products out to billions of people around the world. But the social impact, I think, is you know not always positive. There's there's often some negative aspects as well. So I think it's something that I would say everybody may need to pay attention to, and it's something we may want to incorporate into all types of efforts, not only in the social space. It's true. It's a dimension that I don't think that they were thinking of in advance. But when you think about the actual impact that something like Uber or Facebook has had on society, positive or negative, I don't think it was what was anticipated. Exactly. And and so the idea is, you know, when we're blazing new paths and getting into new unexplored territory, there's risk and, and there, there's risks in all three of those dimensions. And so what's important is not to say we shouldn't take those risks, but what's important is to as early as possible test and understand those risks and be able to understand what's the impact that you're going to have, what's the value you're going to deliver, how are you going to drive growth and validate those things and optimize for them, right? If, if you test for these things early on, you can see what's working and not, and then you can look at how do you tweak what you're doing to really optimize that so that as you get bigger and bigger, everything you're doing is getting magnified, that you're doing more and more good and not more and more harm. And as you said before, I think one of the big challenges in that is how you do the data gathering so you can get valid, relevant pieces of information that you can use to make that assessment. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that this is where technology is a little bit of a killer app. I think a lot of times people are get excited about the newest, flashiest technologies of you know blockchain or big data or artificial intelligence, and they certainly have the potential to be game changers in many areas. But I would say what's overlooked is the role of technology and data collection, that when we are able to use digital technology, we can get data much more cheaply, much more quickly, much more accurately than ever before. And that allows us to drive much faster feedback loops, you know, whether we're in the United States or in rural Rwanda. That makes a lot of sense. It's about having people in, in the position to use that information, knowing how to use the technology, who are at least of a benevolent bent, who are not trying to hide information, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I, I think data can be used for good or bad. And, you know, we need to certainly be very thoughtful and ethical in, in the ways that we use data and, and also really be thoughtful about privacy. I think a lot of these issues are really bubbling up. You know, I think I think that when we talk about using data, nonprofits actually gather tons of data. Most of that data they, they gather is for compliance purposes, and most of it sits on a bookshelf somewhere. And so when I think about gathering data, I think there's a few things that we really need to think about. One is that the data is actionable, that the data is actually something that you you know what you're going to do with based on the data you get. It's not just something you're going to file away, but like if the result comes back that eight out of 10 people choose this versus two out of 10 people choose this, what are you going to do differently? So you, you should have some action that you're going to take as a result of the data. It should also be timely. So you know, how do we gather data so it's on the order of hours or days, not months or years, so that we can iterate much more quickly based on the data? And I think you know, one of the things that Eric talks about in the Lean Startup book is the data needs to be meaningful. We, we often focus on what Eric calls vanity metrics, especially in the nonprofit space. If you look at any nonprofit website, you probably will see the number of people that, that, that the nonprofit has reached. And if you think about it, the number of people you reach really doesn't tell you anything about whether it's any good. You could have you know, reached all those people, provided them something, and could have had no social benefit. And to go even further, even if it did have a social benefit, if you had given the money to a different organization, could they have even more impact? And even if they had more impact, like, are they only 
getting to 500 people or do they have a path to get to 5 million? And so rather than focusing on the number of people we touch, which I don't think is a very meaningful metric, it's something Eric calls vanity metric, we need to focus on what I call innovation metrics, which are usually at the unit level of for every hundred people you reach, you know, what are the results? You know, how, what's your success rate? What are the costs per person? What is the conversion rate or the adoption rate? Or, you know, what are the, the, these metrics that actually drive change over time? And so when you optimize for those unit metrics, you're much more likely to leverage your impact as you scale. It is so hard to get people off of the vanity metrics. Uh, they become addicted to them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, they're easy, right? I mean, and, and they're, they're nice headline numbers to say, hey, we helped a million people. But, but I think that they're, they're also dangerous because they take our eye off the, uh, what really matters. Right. I mean, for example, you know, the whole notion of Eric's book, it's sold a lot of copies. That's a vanity metric, but it's had an iconic impact on how businesses works. That's a real impact. Yeah, exactly. Now, you and Eric have actually known each other for a while, right? I'm curious what he thought about this when he heard that you were working on the book. Well, I didn't start working on the book actually until after I spoke with Eric. So when I was winding down my time at USAID, um, I should go back and say, Eric and I worked together at a startup company some 15 years ago or so, where he was very early in his engineering career. And I was a VP of engineering and way before Lean Startup existed. And so we've known each other for a while. And when I was winding up my time at USAID, I saw an announcement from Eric's company, Lean Startup Company, that said that they had acquired the rights to this community called Lean Impact that Leanne Pittsford had started that was a community of people really looking at how we could apply Lean Startup to social good. She had gone on to other ventures and didn't have time to really tend to it anymore, and Lean Startup Company picked it up. So I wrote to Eric and I said, hey, you know, I saw that you did this. What are, what are your plans and can I help? Because it's something that I was certainly passionate about. I had had him come talk to my teams before. And he said, you know, we're just figuring it out. Come help us. And so this started a conversation and I proposed to him the idea of writing a book that, you know, I talked to him about some of the different challenges that I had been seeing with people trying to use Lean Startup in the, in the world of USAID and the world of global development. He was really excited about it. It was something that he had wanted to see for a while. He hadn't had the experience himself to feel like he could write the book. And so he strongly encouraged me to do it. And it's been a great partnership. I've worked with both him and his company, the Lean Startup Company, to put together the book. And he, he wrote the forward for the book. And we're going to be doing some events as part of the rollout. That is wonderful. And it also speaks to the importance of that network where you started off, you were his VP and he was an engineer, and now you're working with him as partners on this project. And those relationships keep on evolving over time, as long as you keep in touch with the people that you know. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think relationships are so important in life, of course. And and I think one of the other things I think is a little unusual about how I did this book, and, and I think also speaks a little bit to the idea of how do we focus on you know where we can achieve the greatest impact is most people, when they think about writing a book, they want to build their own brand, right? They come up with their own thing. They're trying to get their name out there. You know, I could have written a book that was very similar to this, which I, I might have done on my own and sort of come up with a, my own name for the book and whatever. But by leveraging Eric's existing brand and network, I felt like we could get the, the word out about the book much more broadly than we could trying to create something entirely new. And so I, I think that that's something we should do more of in the social sector, that it's rare that nonprofits merge with each other. It's rare that people adopt other people's solutions. And, and sometimes that's the best way for us to make the greatest impact. 
That is true. When you think about the writing, as you said, it's a very solitary experience. And so often people think about the book itself has to be a solitary experience. But I love the idea that you leveraged your relationships and leveraged an existing brand so that you could build on something that was already successful and apply it in a broader sense. Yeah. And and we're taking it forward after the book launch as well, where the Lean Startup Company, we're essentially building a division within Eric's company that's going to be focused on Lean Impact, that's sort of focused on the social good segment that will run sort of like as a nonprofit within the for-profit. And and because he already has the infrastructure in place to run conferences and do workshops and do consulting services and have online blog posts and so forth, we're able to leverage all that infrastructure rather than build things all over again. So at the upcoming Lean Startup Conference in mid-November, you know, Eric and I are going to be launching the book and then we have a whole social good track of various speakers there. So we don't have to set up a whole separate conference, although we may also do that at some point in the future. Right, because there is a different audience for that. But it's great because you're you're leveraging an existing infrastructure and effectively you're getting mentorship from Eric about how to build this for yourself. Exactly. I think especially about this in my career switch, that when I went from Silicon Valley into global development, it was a completely different world, completely different people, completely different organizations. So I had to start all over again. And I, I started out really just by you know reaching out to the people I could find and talking to whoever they suggested I talk to and then whoever they suggested I talk to and really just trying to be helpful to anyone, you know, because I brought a very different skill set than existed in that space. And so where I could be helpful from my experiences with technology and in Silicon Valley, you know, I just try to help people. And and a lot of these relationships developed over time. And a lot of folks have really helped me back at some point in return. There are people who are probably following your career right now who are just admiring the courage that you had to make that change and maybe looking to do that themselves. And I'm curious if you have advice to them at that point in their own careers. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of times when people think about trying to do something good, traditionally, people often think too small, where they think about, you know, how can I be another pair of hands and help build a school or go give out some food or something like that. And and I would say, you know, take your talents where you can have the biggest impact is where you can find a way to bring your best talent and your unique skills to social good. And it took me a while to figure out what that that was. You know, my journey took several years to evolve from, okay, how am I going to take, you know, the skills I had in Silicon Valley to this realm of global development? And and it's when I found that intersection, I think that all came together for me with the job at USAID, that I felt like I was able to make a dramatic impact, much more than I would have just being another person, you know, another pair of hands. It speaks to the the value also of diversity in organizations and that you bring people from different backgrounds with different experiences and you get the benefit of their perspectives on things that you might not have gotten otherwise. Exactly. And, and I think this is also true in the innovation process. You know, we've seen lots of data that shows that more diverse groups make better decisions. And I think it's because we each look at a problem from a different lens based on our own experience, based on our own biases. And so the more different perspectives you can bring to a problem the more likely you are to see both opportunities and pitfalls. Well, I know that a lot of people who are listening are going to want to go and find out more about your perspective. So where should I send them? I have a book site up. It's at www.leanimpact.org. And so they can find out all about the book and the upcoming book tour and myself there. Terrific. And mate, thank you so much for being on Hack the Process. I really appreciate your coming on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, 
and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.